The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. America, America, America. The name itself based on an oddity. An Italian explorer who was not the first to discover the place, obviously, while the place was inhabited. But he wasn't the first European to discover it either. Amerigo Vespucci wasn't in the part of America that we now know as the United States. He was likely in Brazil and perhaps Mexico, and some of his historical accounts need to put historical in quotes. But if you're going to take a name that doesn't belong, take one from an Italian because their names are so pretty. America is a beautiful word, and at times it has been a beautiful place with beautiful ideas, beautiful dreams, beautiful promise. At other times, it's filled with something less beautiful. We don't need to enumerate the darknesses. They are in our history and culture, ancient past and instant present. America is revered, and America is contested and it has a literature that reflects it all. Or does it? What exactly is America, and what is American literature? That's the subject of a book by our guest today called, appropriately enough, What is American Literature? Question mark. Professor Elon Stavins, today on The History of Literature. <music> Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I am Jack Wilson, American podcaster, I suppose you might say. I don't have much else to claim, and I don't have anywhere to hide. My cousin told me once that I could have had a second passport, thanks to my two Swiss grandparents, which he shared. Our moms didn't do it, he told me, because of the fee. My cousin is a world traveler who has been almost everywhere. He's been roaming the planet for about 30 years now. And even so, he lamented not having that Swiss passport. We could go anywhere, he said. Imagine Cuba, Iran. Those were the two places on his list that I remember back when we had that conversation. And by then, the loophole had closed and we were not allowed to be Swiss anymore. The fee, the fee, <laughs> he moaned. Oh, it was like $10, he moaned. And so we were not Swiss. We were Americans, Americans only, for better or worse, like it or lump it, with nowhere else to hide and no one else to be. America is as wild as a kaleidoscope. It's different for everyone. It's a place and a state of mind. One comes at it from all angles, or maybe I should say everyone has their own angle, and they approach it from that angle, and so America is being approached at all different angles all at once, all the time. How does one begin to define such a place? And literature itself is pretty slippery. So how do we dig in? Well, here at the History of Literature podcast, we'd look for help. One such guide comes in the form of this book that's in my hand now, What is American Literature? by the professor, cultural critic, and literature expert, Ilan Stavins, the Louis Sebring Professor in Latin American and Latino College and Five College 40th Anniversary Professor at Amherst College. He's the publisher at Restless Books and the host of the NPR podcast, In Contrast. He's also the author of many books. In this one, he takes a look at American literature as a gateway to many topics, the topics, many topics, <laughs> almost said tapioca, many topics. We don't have tapioca of interest. We have topics of interest, including where did the idea of America as exceptional come from? Yes. Is this exceptionalism something we still do? 
Is it current or part of the past? What keeps Americans reinventing themselves? Those are good questions. And he asked the key questions for us today. Is the literature Americans have produced exceptional? In what ways? Might it be said to constitute a collective memory? Does it pass through generations? Or do we forget over and over? Is America distracted? Does it care or not? Those are big subjects. I'm not sure we cover all those with Professor Stavins, but that's what his book is for. We'll give you a taste of his thinking and his project. Anyway, Ilan Stavins and American Literature after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Professor Elen Stavins of Amherst College, a cultural critic and author of many books, including What is American Literature? A Meditation on a Nation's Identity Through the Prism of Its Books. Professor Stavins, welcome to the History of Literature. I am delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So I'd like to start with you, if I could. Where did you grow up? I am a native of uh, Mexico City. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, part of a small immigrant enclave, Eastern European Jews from Belarus, Ukraine, Poland, Russia, um, that had made their way at the beginning of the 20th century. And up until the Second World War, I am a grandchild of some of those newcomers to Mexico. Right. Well, I think we will get into that uh, soon because it sounds like you have a a great vantage point for seeing across cultures and especially when addressing something like what is American literature. uh, It's probably you're probably drawing on all kinds of perspectives. But before we get to that, I just wanted to ask you what kind of a, a reader you were as a child? When did you start reading literature, or when did you start noticing that this was something you wanted to devote your life to? I was a rather apathetic reader in my <laughs> young teenage years. Yeah. I, the allure was the outdoors, in not the life of the mind. Something clicked, though, at the end of that decade for me, and maybe as I was reaching 18, 19, 20, I discovered books. And uh-huh. the, especially, I remember the it, it kind of feverish discovery of a couple of novels, one of them, A Hundred Years of Solitude, uh, that uh, utterly transformed me. And since then, I have never left the page, either as a reader or trying to build one for other readers. Wow. Do you remember what it was about 100 Years of Solitude that struck you so strongly? 
I do. It seemed to me that that book, which I read in, I think, 18 hours straight, mm. without sleep, without hardly eating anything, had created a reality that was more complex and interesting than mine, than ours, one that I wanted to inhabit with its own laws, with its own texture. And I was absolutely mesmerized by the capacity of an author to become a godlike creature who could um, invent a world with such magic and with such uh, biodiversity. And that uh, early impression never left me. I always longed for that type of uh, enraptured experience that I had. You know, often uh, I am a, a devoted reader, but a distracted reader. I go into a book and then jump into another. That reading of 100 Years of Solitude was unimpeded by anything. And in that sense, it was pure and it was supreme. Yeah. Do you think you could have an experience like that today after you've read all of the literature? I'm thinking you were probably a pretty, I don't want to say naive reader, but now that you've read so much literature, you probably look at it as you see more of the mechanics or you're placing it within a tradition or you, you have maybe a different experience toward literature. Or do you think you're, do you find that you're able to recreate that magic of just being a pure reader? I long for that magic, and on occasion, that magic comes back, though seldom uh, with a new book. Yeah. Uh, what that magic to me is in most recent years, and because I have reached my 60s, is uh, the return to some classics that I am drawn to, uh, and I'm able to experience on a third, fourth, fifth, 20th reading of, say, Don Quixote or The Odyssey or certain plays of Shakespeare, that out-of-the-world uh, experience that uh, in some ways mimics what I went through when I was a teenager. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. That's kind of what I've experienced as well, but enough about me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, let's talk about American literature did you move to America or were you looking, did you start reading American literature or thinking about American literature before you left Mexico City? In Mexico, I don't remember reading uh, American literature. And by American, I mean U.S. literature mm -hmm. uh, in any consistent or guided way. I, I stumbled upon a few books here and there, uh, mainly a, a, the recommendation either of a friend or of a writer that I had read who had uh, elevated a particular book in, in, above all others. In, it was systematic, it was chaotic, and for that reason, it was delightful. It wasn't as if I was studying American literature, I was simply entering it, the many doors of the of that building that is a, this country's literature in a haphazard, a spontaneous, mm, very personal way. And of course, in that period, it was mostly not in English. It was in other languages. It was in Spanish or in Hebrew or in another language that I would have access to. Um, and only later did I go to the original, just as, as I was about to leave Mexico and uh, wander through Europe. I remember reading Moby Dick, for mm, instance, yeah. uh, in, a, in a Spanish translation. And I thought that it was a magnificent Latin American novel, not an American novel, but a, a Latin American one in its breadth, in its encyclopedic uh, scope. Uh, also, in the way it uh, it traveled the world, uh, it didn't seem to me to be as uh, self-centered as other types of uh, American literature that I had encountered at that time. And I also remember reading for the very first time a book that uh, struck me deeply, but I don't think I understood it. I still don't understand. I still don't believe I fully understand it today. And that is the Mark Twain, the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Mm. It, to me, that is the 
the beginning of American literature, the, the kind of centerpiece. And the, when I first encountered it in Mexico, again, in that translation, it seemed to me to have been a, a displayed in a bookstore as, a, as an adolescent book, and I took it as such. I didn't see its complexity, the nuances of the language. I don't remember how the Spanish translation was able or not to convey that the, the difficulty of Jim's parlance, which is probably the, the most challenging aspect that any translator of that book faces. Mm-hmm. But I was struck by that friendship between Hogg and Jim, what it meant, and um, the fact that the whole novel was a journey. I loved it then, didn't return to that book for many years, but it was sitting in my memory very comfortably, in in some ways asking to be revisited, uh, which I did maybe 30 years later, and, uh, and rediscovered it. Mm. Let's take a quick break, and then we will come back. I want to to ask you, we'll we'll try to see if we can define what we're talking about when we talk about American literature, and we'll see why Huckleberry Finn is such a good example of it. Okay, we are back with Professor Elen Stavans. I'm always worried I'm going to pronounce it wrong. <laughs> I hope I'm not You're butchering You're doing a good it. job. Okay, good. No. <laughs> um, so let's start with this. When we talk about American literature, you corrected me or you, you clarified when I said American literature that you were referring to U.S. literature. In terms of your book, What is American Literature? Do you set any geographical or time period boundaries when you're defining what's in and what's out? No, I don't. And precisely that is the the effort that I am uh, hoping to uh, achieve, yeah. uh, to try to erase the boundaries, to mm-hmm. see how the boundaries have uh, kept on shifting, uh, to uh, wonder to what degree the word America really speaks about the, the nation's literature, uh, what other nations and what other literatures can come under the same rubric. Um, What is it that we are trying to convey when we uh, use that term American literature? Is it something that is written in English exclusively? Is it written by Americans that live in the United States? Can it be immigrants? Can it be expats? Could it be uh, about America, but not written by an American, meaning a U.S. citizen, all those aspects are very attractive to me. Right. So if we're going to, uh, in some ways, the bright lines of saying, okay, we'll just start in 1776 and we'll make it United States literature and we'll include the continental U.S. and, and so on, that would in some ways make it easier. There might be some people who who emigrated or lived in two countries or someone like T.S. Eliot might be a, a judgment call, but it, it would make it a lot easier. But it's a lot more interesting if we're looking at it more in terms of a state of mind or a set of common themes. So what are the uh, qualities that to you would help make it an American literature? Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to... Uh preface my answer to your question by um, bringing forth another book that I was uh, writing uh, more or less at the same time. It was also published by Oxford University Press and uh, is concurrent in the queries that I was applying to what is American literature. And that is uh, a small meditation on Jewish literature. Hmm. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because to me, Jewish literature is a paradigm of spacelessness and lack of linguistic concentration that defines a clear 
by, by which I mean a clearly demarcated tradition. It, uh, Jewish literature can be written, written in French, can be written in Hebrew, can be written in Yiddish, can be written in Spanish, in Portuguese, in Italian. It, it can be written in any of those languages and in any of those countries where those languages are spoken. So uh, a Jewish book might sit on the same shelf uh, with another one that is in a different tongue by a writer that belongs to a different period, and nothing really uh, might have brought them together other than the fact that they uh, believe to share the same sensibility, the sensibility of being Jewish. They might not have been religious. They might not have been even... A committed to a belonging to the Jewish community. And yet the questions of what it means to be Jewish a, and how that engages with, as a minority, with a larger environment, a, say the United States or France or Germany, is what defines that literature. In contrast, American literature strikes me as much more easy to define and perhaps for that reason, much more square-minded. Mm. American literature is the literature that is produced by Americans uh, within a particular period of time. You, you established it 1776, let's say until the, the very present. And that is uh, written also in English. But uh, if we go deeper, we can find that there are, and you suggested one or more, writers that have been living as expats uh, in say, Paris, uh, Hemingway, uh, uh, Alice Stoklas, um, and others who are, John Dos Passos, mm. who are writing as Americans, but are not writing about America. They can be writing about the Spanish Civil War, the Second World War. They are also, there are also writers that are Americans that have switched languages um, that began in, in English, but then switched to Italian or the, the recent case of Jhumpa Lahiri, or immigrants that have come to the United States, uh, got their green card, uh, got their citizenship. I'm thinking here of Isaac Pashevizinger, who won the Nobel Prize in 1978, but throughout his life, almost exclusively wrote in Yiddish. And everything that we read by him is in translation. So in this case, an American writer is a, a writer that arrives to us in a language that is not English in, in a translated text, which is often something that we um, commonly connect with the idea that foreignness arrives to us in that sense. Uh, there's also a, a great tradition in American literature of uh, writing about missionaries and the writing into other parts of the world about what being an American might mean uh, during the war in Iraq or in Afghanistan or explorations during the 19th century of the Caribbean or of Latin America or of Asia. Um, so I, what, I'm, what I'm attracted is to this question of what makes all of these entities uh, come together? Is there, is there a gravitational force that defines us beyond the confines, the parameters, the perimeters of the nation itself with its borders. And I'm also very interested in, and this is, this is I would say, the result of uh, having written what is American literature, how the American language has changed over time. That is actually the topic of my next book, which mm. is called The People's Tongue, uh, Americans and the English Language. It's an anthology, a sprawling um, anthology that uh, uh, reflects the many changes that English has gone through from before uh, the War of Independence to the very present and the many types of internal voices that we hear when we're writing in English, say that Chinglish or in Spanglish or Yinglish, writers that are writing like Zora Neale Hurston or um, Henry Roth that are writing in the English language, but making the language elastic in such a way so that a minority, say Blacks or Jews or Italians or uh, the Chinese can express themselves in something that is a hybrid uh, tongue 
neither here nor there, where a sentence can begin in Spanish and move into English, go back to Spanish, back and forth until you get a whole paragraph that is almost symmetrically balanced between the two languages. Is that still a American literature? Is that part of Latin American literature because it's in Spanish and it's written by a Mexican or by uh, somebody from, from Cuba? In, in to what extent do we use language as the prism or the entrance door to say this is part of what our conception of the nation is or isn't? Mm. So when you're, just so I understand, it sounds like you're looking at kind of a combination. On the one hand, it's dependent on who is writing and how they view themselves and where they fit in a conception of America. And then you're also doing, I don't know if this is part of a uh, a search to find what American literature is, or if you're, once you take that group of books, then you're interested in seeing, well, do they have any any common themes or are there any ideas that we can see that would set this type of literature apart? So it sounds like you're kind of doing both of those things. Is that right? Exactly. Both of those things and trying to explore the degree to which uh, the literature of this country is not only a form of entertainment and of instruction, but a mirror and a map and a compass of how we have understood ourselves, understand ourselves, and will in the future. And, and that is, I will say, um, uh, kind of a legacy or an influence of my Mexican uh, or written lar writ large, my Latin American upbringing. In Latin America, in contrast with the United States, literature is, is, is seen as an instrument of change. Mm. Uh, uh, um, the channel through which voices that are seldom recognized in the in the mainstream uh, are able to express themselves, and that uh, that is 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 charged with a lot of ideological messaging, and uh, in many ways writers are also in Latin America uh, psychologists and they are uh, activists. And, but they are also entertainers, and they are codifiers of what the the country is thinking or exploring. The in Latin America figures like Borges or Pablo Neruda acquire a kind of prophetic status, where uh, by people follow them uh, more passionately and more authentically than they follow a president or a senator, because they they hear the clarion of their message louder and, uh, and clearer. And I wanted to see if the same type of approach could be used to, to look at Melville and Emily Dickinson and uh, uh, Hawthorne uh, and Twain, uh, that is in the 19th century, but also writers of the 20th century. What do those books say about the country, about the nation, uh, and in what way is, is that concept uh, a moving target? Yeah. And to see if they reflect certain ideas that Americans have about themselves or whether they are actually moving to create those self-conceptions or challenge them. Absolutely. Uh, to see if they reflect those ideas. But I want to add one more element that in my book, um, I think is, is, is where I tend to stress. I think that literature is not what the author intends. I think that mm. literature is what the reader gets from what the author intended. Yeah. And in many ways, what, they, what, uh, what is American literature seeks to achieve is a kind of a history of American readers. Who have been the readers who have opened up uh, Huckleberry Finn and Emily Dickinson's poems and Uncle Tom's Cabin and the Beloved and the, uh, many other books? in what way their reaction to the books has made them feel part of the club or they, they have been left behind. And when they have been left behind, in what capacity have they felt that it is their duty to add to that concert of voices? So it's to me, the, what is often left behind when we think about literature is 
what is most important, the reader, mm. the readers, the many readers. And uh, that is what I seek to um, decipher in the book. Who has been reading a Huckleberry thing? And how have they been seeing this book? How, they, how have they been connecting the dots with the previous readers and the readers that are yet to come? Yeah. Let's take a specific example. The one that I was trying to get my mind around as I was going through your book was American exceptionalism. And I see that in—it's easy for me to spot that in politicians and their rhetoric. And sometimes they're they're self-aware enough to recognize that that's what they're doing, and often they just take it for granted, and they just will apply that notion that America is the best, or America is different, America is special— all of that. When it comes to literature, did you find or or do you do you think that authors are uh, contesting that? Uh, are they trying to create that view, or is it just they're sort of reflecting it as if it's part of the air around them, so to speak? My view is that uh, American writers look at this uh, heavy burden of what makes this nation exceptional and try to uh, decipher it from all sorts of perspectives, sometimes with a very skeptical eye, thinking there's nothing that makes us different from anybody else either our contemporaries or uh, nations that came, empires that came before us. And in other cases, they take it to extremes. Uh, they, they use it, as in the case of, say, the great Gatsby, uh, or even Moby Dick, where bigness, uh, overinflated sense of self, is really what is being dissected. Uh, and... And it's being done maybe with a, 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 a kind of a, a, an ironic, a sarcastic mm-hmm. uh, approach, or maybe simply because this is the, the electorate or the citizens have taken this to such degree at face value that the writer cannot do anything but try to uh, explore it in, in some way without it ever really being brought down. But I think that American exceptionalism in the end is what makes American literature uh, unexceptional. Mm. And I don't say this <laughs> in a demeaning way. I think that any uh, literary tradition that connects to a nation is in itself exceptional. That what that nations, the Germans, the Russians, the, the Argentines want to do is to show what makes them Argentines or Russians or Germans? Uh, what distinguishes them from everybody else? So they are exceptional. They are different. They might not believe that God has granted them, as he did to the Israelites in the Bible, a, a special status the way Americans do. But they do think that the Argentine literature has certain qualities that distinguishes it from Uruguayan literature or Brazilian literature or from British literature. And the same thing with other nations. Here we have, we have swallowed the, the, the message whole and thought that there is this uh, almost view that God is, is walking next to us uh, ahead of everybody else as if we are destined to have a future that is way superior to everybody else. But what, what American writers do is question this at the very core. In what is the life of the ghetto? Uh, uh, what does it say about American exceptionalism and, and, and the mafia and in, you know, political corruption? Are we really exceptional or is this a trick that we tell ourselves in order to feel that this country is unique and different and called to perform certain tasks that others don't see for themselves? Right. So we are, I'm fascinated by this idea about uh, 
the stories that groups of people tell themselves in order to create an identity or a nation. And we're in the middle now of this war uh, in uh, Ukraine. And the one of the first things that struck me when the news started coming out was that hearing that Russians were being told and believing that they were denazifying this country. And I kind of thought, Nazis, where does that come from? Like, are they crazy? What are they What are they even thinking? And then, of course, I connected it to, oh, that's their, their moment of great triumph. That's the, you know, World War II being this, this call to glory. And it's been a, a sustaining, uh, you know, self-conception that they go in and they beat Nazis. And my first thought was, it made them seem almost brainwashed to me. But then I thought about my own life and the way that I've looked at being an American. And I've, I have I can remember when I first went abroad and I was telling people, oh, you know, Americans, we're... And I was taking this story from something my father had told me. It's sort of a, a primitive history lesson. But it was like, oh, in America, we... We had a revolution and we were fighting behind trees and we weren't wearing these bright red uniforms and marching in formation. We were always the the sneaky ones and the, the plucky mm-hmm. ones who were pragmatic and doing what it takes to win. Of course, that has no con- that has no connection to myself or my ancestors or there's no reason why I should think that I'm plucky or resourceful or anything like that based on what had happened hundreds of years ago but I I viewed it as part of my identity and it's interesting to me that these stories are so powerful in moving people and making helping people to kind of identify as something and feel like they're part of a community but it seems like literature always challenges that and always yeah. says, well, is that really who you are? Or is that, are you really, uh, you know, it's a, it's a more complicated story than that. And that makes me wonder if literature does define who we are, or if it's always just sort of telling us what's wrong with the definitions that we're trying to find through our oral traditions or in our history lessons or when we listen to political speeches and so on. I would say the latter. I mm. think that the task of literature is not to answer, but to question. Yeah. Um, and to question in ways that lead to other questions. So, um, so that we are, uh, we ponder in a, through a literary character with the empathy that we feel for that character, if the, the reality that we have built for ourselves makes sense, or if it's a, 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 like an entanglement of, of uh, suggestions and lies and self-delusions. Um, we live at a time when popular culture has a, an, an astonishing power. Uh, superheroes, uh, comic strips, graphic novels, uh, commercials, Netflix, Hollywood. And there is often the belief that literature is losing ground, uh, diminishing its status uh, in the expansion that this popular field is having. Um, And, you know, there's no doubt that uh, fewer people read now than read in other periods, or maybe the same amount of people, but there are more people now. Uh, In any event, the book is in crisis. But I don't think that it will ever disappear. The book serves a a function that no other narrative can fulfill. And that is that it it pushes the imagination of the reader Mm. to uh, go in directions that are uncontrolled. The the writer might suggest, but a good writer pushes us to, to wander and wander on our own. In with a Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment, or with a Don Quixote in the Masterpiece by Cervantes, and we feel that we are Don Quixote, or that we are Raskolnikov. That is what attracts us to those books. I think that that the literature is about those nuances, about the contradictions of characters, about the fact that they can be telling the truth, but they are also liars, because all of us are liars and also want to tell the truth. And and we also like between the two. I, I, when, while you were uh, speaking, I was thinking of a word that I hear with 
astonishing frequency recently, especially among my students and young people, and that is gaslighting. Mm. As a a non-native, I have to confess that I did not know what gaslighting was. (laughs) You hadn't seen the movie? uh... (laughs) That's right. It it wasn't until my students called my attention to the movie that I, and they they defined it to me as if they were Merriam-Webster itself or the OED, that I realized the impact that this word has, the way it describes the world in which we live, trying to make others believe that you are, that the reality in which you exist is, is fractured or it's, it's, it's not accurate in comp- competing realities. And that is what, if, if we still, at the end of the book, I wonder if we still have a nation. After the four, it was, it's a book written during the, the Trump years. And it seems to me that uh, the fracturing of America took place during those four years in a way that it had been much more dramatic than anything that happened from the Civil War to the present. Mm. And I, I frankly fear that um, with the gaslighting idea that there is uh, an election that is inconclusive still, that there is a considerable portion of the electorate that believes that the president Biden, Biden is illegitimate, that he didn't win in a, in a straight and in convincing fashion, it, that we are living not in one universe, but in a multiverse or at least in parallel realities. And so does that mean that we are about to enter another civil war? Or does that mean that we have two different literatures? Yeah. A literature that satisfies one type of the population in a very different type is has a very different literature. When you have two literatures, two literary traditions, do you still have one country? I, it seems to me that the schism, the abyss is right before us. And it's frightening. Because it's not just the we can't agree on basic facts, but we also seem to have this hard time right now with the need to define other people in a way that doesn't make sense to them. And I feel like in some ways that's that's the gaslighting that gets me the most. And I'm sure that everyone on, on either side or on all sides feel like that's happening to them. But it's sort of this, right. um, you know, somebody who might support a Democrat uh, or Democratic causes and what they hear on the other side is, well, that must mean that you love pedophilia and you must be uh, you must want open borders and you're a, a, a baby killer and, you know, all of these things. And, and people uh, might say, well, you know, that wasn't I was I was interested in helping the climate and, and trying to get jobs for people. And I wasn't really thinking about transgender bathrooms and I wasn't really thinking about, you know, but it's this. It's, oh, you must be X. And it's kind of part of this culture war. I'm sure people on the other side think, well, I was just trying to get, you know, less regulation and and lower taxes. And here you are calling me X, Y, and Z. And it it feels like instead of thinking, who are we and what makes us special, what makes us different, it's almost like we've turned it on one another and it's all, well, here's who you are. And I'm going to define myself by saying I'm not part of you, even though you're living in this same territory that I am. Yeah. It, you know, a, a year or two ago, the word of the year that Merriam-Webster included a, or, or proposed to everybody at the end of the year, they always have the most popular or the one that they most defined the previous 12 months was the word day, because mm-hmm. we are now hesitant to work, to use the word he or she, uh, but it seems to me that the real word that is in crisis is the word we. Mm. We have absolutely lost the trust that in that word we, all sorts of different persuasions, all sorts of different beliefs can fit in. And instead, we have broken that word we into opposing bands uh, that do not have trust. When, if you want to have a nation, if, if, if we uh, 
set ourselves the exercise. Let's start a new nation for ourselves. So what would we need? Well, we would need, I think, a, a territory, although it's not essential, but, you know, they're, they're, uh, I was talking about Jewish literature. Jewish literature doesn't have a territory. We would need a, a flag. We would need a national bank. We would need a post office. We would probably need one or two national languages, and we would need a shared history or a shared mythology mm. that would bring us all together. And that shared mythology would help us in kind of build ourselves around the concept that we have something in common, that we trust each other. But when, you, when that mythology is, uh, is broken and becomes the alternative mythologies with their own heroes and the uh, anti-heroes, uh, then what you are seeing is really a, a breaking apart of the sense of togetherness. So that word we, to me, is the one that uh, seems to be incredibly elusive these days. Mm -hmm. Who are we? Can, is there really still a we the people? Or is it a, 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 an us and them the people? And, yeah. uh, and that's, that's dangerous. Well, that actually does give me at least a little bit of hope for literature, even though, as we've been talking about literature, the content of it doesn't necessarily lend itself to this because it's always asking us to challenge assumptions and it's it's asking us to, to question a kind of groupthink that might be part of a, a nation coming together and defining itself. But it also seems like when we can't agree on politics and we have issues there, there are things, I'm thinking of nations that look to a favorite author, for example, and define themselves and say, well, we're the nation of Shakespeare, or we're, we're proud of Dante, or we're proud of Pushkin. And Americans, you know, they might, even, even for all of our differences, we still watch the NFL, and we still mm -hmm. have Super Bowl Sunday, and we still have Thanksgiving, and we still have moments where we are building a kind of tradition together that maybe can be a basis for a, a, a reawakening of unity and, and common ground. And I'm hopeful that there's some literature in there. I don't know if enough people read it and engage with it and enjoy mm -hmm. it uh, to, to be, you know, as, as big as something like, well, we all uh, watched Seinfeld when that was on, or we all did, you know, other kind of, uh, we all listened to Prince or, you know, something like that. But I'm, I, I wonder if there could be an author or if we have uh, something that's been on the syllabi that we all have valued that might serve that kind of a role. Your question is very sobering, and it makes me think that the, were, we to, were he alive and were we to ask Shakespeare what he thought of the fact that we use his name to describe the entire age that he represents, mm. And my impression is that he would laugh. He never thought of himself <laughs> as the the one that was a, a channeling all the ghosts, all the 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 hopes of an era. In fact, you know, he was just one more playwright. Playwriting was not supposed to be a, for the future. It was only for the present. He never even wanted his plays to be published. Uh, only his poetry, because poetry is really what mattered uh, in the years to come. And yet now we call the Elizabethan era uh, the, the Shakespeare age. And uh, maybe there is a writer out there that we don't know that is doing something that we in the present are yet incapable of seeing. And this person is shrewd enough to capture the many contradictions that are defining us in ways that will go far beyond our inconsistencies and our, uh, you know, nearsightedness. Uh, it is fitting that we don't know who will represent us. Mm. The, the future will decide that. I'm hoping that Tom Brady is only for the present, but Tom Brady will fade and somebody in literature, not in the NFL, will come to uh, describe the contradictions that we experience. And it's probably somebody who is, who is, um, who's, who's, 
in the margins, uh, who is very observant, who has a capacity to use language in a way that we think is pedantic at this point or not quite fitting, but in the end will survive in ways that many of us will not. Mm. That is wonderfully put. I will keep my fingers crossed and my eyes open and hope that we see such a figure. Uh, Professor <laughs> Elin Stavins, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. My pleasure. Thank you for having me again. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Wasn't that great? I can't wait to dive into some more American literature. We have at least one great white whale we haven't yet harpooned and no i'm not talking about herman melvin i'll let you guess but it's not hard to guess but that is in the works what else can we promise how about kierkegaard and the diary of a seducer and we will have a compilation soon on writers and war and some more henry james speaking of americans he's certainly one of the best william blake is coming up soon too that was a fun one and edward gibbon the classic historian, and maybe we need to hear some more, uh, or some, for the first time, June Jordan, and maybe a swerve into Dostoevsky's crime and punishment. Is that a swerve? More like a plunge. That's me, your humble plunger. Oh, wait. (laughs) That's not exactly all that flattering, is it? Reminds me of my friend who wrote a note to her professor and said, your ideas have been like fertilizer for my brain. I suggested an edit, which hopefully helped. Your ideas have helped my mind flourish. Like shit being spread on flowers. Well, no. No, I didn't suggest that, dear listeners. I can be obtuse, but I'm not crude or cruel. I think my edit was, well, wait, who cares? Who cares what it was? Who cares what anything was? Who cares who I am other than me, maybe? And yet here I am, and yet here I go, once again, saying for the X-hundredth time, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.